live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber. You can't look away Ask her does she do it really nothing to it She's got that fun on the game If you have a party Or if you're feeling naughty Call up the house of the maid Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash amberlive. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There's so much more to the show than just the interviews that Amber does each week. We have hundreds of interviews, comedy sketches, songs, and more on YouTube that you can watch anytime. But... In the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of Amber Live Interviews. For years, the credit for creating the character of Batman was given solely to Bob Kane. But thanks to author Mark Tyler Nobleman, Kane's co-creator, Bill Finger, is getting his well-deserved fame. Nobleman has written a book about Bill Finger, and while promoting his book and the story, he happened to mention a word that got some school officials upset. What was that word? Gay. As Paul Harvey used to say, let's find out what the rest of the story. Mark, come on in. Hi, Amber. Hi, Mark. All right. So all things Batman. What got you interested in Batman? Uh, well, you can catch a, a hint right behind me. These are comic books. And uh, it goes back to my childhood. I was a superhero fan and never outgrew it. So when I grew up and became an author... It was only a matter of time before my childhood, well, lifetime passion uh, intersected with my job, and I ended up writing about both Batman and Superman. What were you writing about before um, Batman took over? Well, I've only written the one book on Batman and one on Superman, so it's not that's not my full-time career, although sometimes it feels like it is. But before that, I was writing other books for kids of all of, on all different topics. So you're a, a children's author? Yeah, that's my primary gig, children's author and speaker. And speaker, all right, and, and that—that's what got you into trouble. Well, let's start, let's back up. So, um, you—you've been a Batman and Superman fan uh, since a child. I can—I can empathize with that. So, why did you go into the delving of the origins of Batman? Well, the 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 focus of my work at the time, and to some extent still, is 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 untold stories, true stories, and believe it or not. Uh, as late as the 2000s, no one had written a standalone biography of either the creators of Superman or Batman, which is which is quite shocking considering they go back to the late 1930s. So I realized this was a great opportunity and I couldn't believe that I was I was the one to get to, to do this. I mean, I no one asked me to do it. I was just trying to do it on my own. But it was just such a you know a fertile topic. And even for people that don't like superheroes, because the stories behind both of the characters are quite sad. So there's a good there's a good narrative pull to it, and on top of the hook of superheroes. 
So tell us about that sad story about Batman. So, uh, I mean, compared to some of the things going on in the world today, it's it's not it's not the greatest uh, evil. But here's what happened. Uh, Batman was created by two people, a, a writer named Bill Finger and an artist named Bob Kane. 1939. Bob Kane, the artist, took full credit and Bill let him. So Bill ended up working anonymously for 25 years on Batman, not just writing Batman, the first Batman story, but the first appearances of Robin and the Joker and Catwoman and the Batmobile and so many now iconic elements. Bill did all that in the shadows and Bob took all the credit. And so by the time Bill passed away in 1974, even hardcore Batman fans had not heard his name, which uh, he was. Is, no, he was he, he wasn't getting credit. Was he getting paid? Was he getting equal pay? He, well, he wasn't getting equal pay, but he was, he was getting paid. He was getting paid to write. He worked directly for Bob for a short time. And then the company that was publishing Batman found out that Bob was not writing these stories. And they basically hired Bill away from Bob. So Bill was always making um, money for the stories themselves, but not royalty for the stories and not royalty for anything else Batman. So when the big you know Batman TV show came out in the 60s, that really you know, elevated him to a pop culture phenomenon. Bob made out very well and Bill did write one episode of it, but otherwise got nothing from it. And Bob was, was apparently okay with that. How, how did you start your research? Where, where did you have to go to find out this information? Well, there wasn't much. Uh, Bill had, again, never been the subject of a book and had been mostly a cameo in other books about Batman. So I read the, the few articles I could find on him. And then I started to try to reach people that either knew him or knew of him. So starting with people in the comic book industry, this was again about 17 years ago, there were still a number of people alive who had worked and knew, known Bill personally, worked with and known him. So I did talk to a lot of those people, actually, I think it was about nine people, interviewed them all, lovely people, all in their, mostly in their 80s. And then I tried to find family because that was, I thought, really the untapped story. And this obviously would most likely not be contemporaries because he would have, you know, he was born in 1914. So, but anybody who knew him, you know, nieces, nephews, cousins, his only son, Fred had died. That'll be a part of our conversation soon, but uh, he had died before I started. So there was no children of Bill's to look, to talk to. Now, do you go to any of the Comic-Cons or any, are there Batman conventions? I've been to Comic-Con because of this book. Uh, I haven't gone just to, enjoy. I've gone for work-related reasons. So, and not to say I don't enjoy it at, at times. I'm not, I'm not the biggest Comic-Con type person. I, 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 I would unlikely go, I would, I would, it would be unlikely that I would go just to hang out. Although I have friends now in the business. Um, so I went for, you know, to promote the book. I went to make the document, to film part scenes for the documentary, um, to promote the documentary, but I haven't just gone to, you know, dress up as Catwoman and walk around. All right. You mentioned the documentary. Let's talk about that. How did you get approached for that? Or did you go out and say, hey, I want to do a documentary? Well, uh, I had a friend um, who worked for a documentary company when I was researching the book. And he said, this sounds like it'd make a great film. And I said, I'd love to do that because I haven't even sold the book yet. So if I make a film first, it would probably increase my chances of selling the book. So we did start. We shot two interviews and they they funded that and uh, gung-ho, but it ended up um, being nixed because this company was part of Time, Time Magazine, Time New Media, which was also 
uh, under the same parent company as DC Comics, which is um, Warner Brothers, Time Warner. So they didn't like the idea of one of their divisions doing a story that could paint them in a somewhat controversial light. Um, wasn't a surprise to me that that happened. It was just disappointing. So then um, I tried again with another company a few years later that also imploded. And then when the credit, uh, well, what I didn't say before is um, through my efforts and people I found, including Bill's only known grandchild, we were able to um, get Bill's name added to Batman after 76 years of anonymity. And when that happened, uh, 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 the, the, uh, the doc people were interested in making a documentary. All right. We, we have the trailer of the documentary. Let's watch that. This story for me was uncovering a big superhero secret. Bob Kane is the man who has been credited on Batman for most of Batman's history. When you open a comic book, there it says created by Bob Kane. When you see the movies, it says created by Bob Kane. Correcting that is something that terrified everybody, I think, for decades. Bill Finger was the dominant creative force of Batman, Robin, the Joker, Catwoman, the Riddler, the Penguin, the Scarecrow, Commissioner Gordon, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson, and Gotham City. I know Bob's trying to take credit for everything. Everything you would think is good, that's Bill. So how could this not have been so well known? I was a ghost, and I really was. Bob Kane did not want Bill Finger's story told and took tremendous offense at. Bill was Batman's secret identity. It became a crusade, getting Bill's name on Batman. Superheroes are not doing this to get paid or praised. They are doing something for the greater good, then they disappear into the night. Without Bill, there'd be no Batman. So what happened to Bill Finger? This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast, by using our Venmo at RJD Pro, or by visiting us at AmberLive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. And now, back to this incredible interview. Uh, when, when did it premiere? 2017. All right, so it's been up around for a while. And you go, you mentioned you go out to, uh, to, to speak to people, to, to schools, and you talk about Batman. And something happened recently. Tell us that story. Yes. So I have the great privilege of speaking at a, a range of venues around the world, but the majority is schools, which could be anywhere from kindergarten through, well, college, frankly. Um, and I was in Georgia in August, speaking at three schools, three days, um, three talks per day at each school. And these were all elementary schools. And I tell the same story that I always tell, which is the detective story behind my book, which is to say, yes, putting Bill at the center of the legacy. And to do that, to be, to tell the story properly, I need to mention some behind the scenes things, which includes that Bill had one son named Fred, who was gay and who died in 1992, which was 15 years before I started the research. So the, the, the significance of it is that I was going to write a book no matter what, which I thought would build some support for, for possibly getting Bill's name added. But I was also told that legally, the only person who can contest a credit line would be an heir. And when I heard that Fred was gay and died in the early 90s, I thought, well, game adoption was not allowed then in this country. 
And I didn't even didn't even occur to me that he could have had a biological child. I was misdirected. Um, so it was a huge, huge shock. It was actually a record scratch moment when I found out that Fred did have a biological child in the 70s, which means that Bill had a granddaughter, which means there was someone to legally fight for credit. So I don't say it in those terms when I'm talking to third graders. It's part of the buildup of the story. I just say there were three things I learned about Fred at, this, at the start of research that would change not only my book, but something much bigger than that, that Fred was Bill's only child, that Fred was gay, and that Fred died in 1992. Setting up now, this. Why, now, why did you think that you had to say that he was gay? Why, why do you find that an important topic to bring up? Well, first of all, it's just it's it's part of the the the, the texture of this family's life. It's 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 who he was, and it. But more to the point for my presentation is, it's I'm I'm trying to be a performer. I'm trying to tell a story, and I need to set up twists and then pay them off. So most people, even as young as third grade, would hear that someone was gay and might not assume that there's a child. So when I reveal that there is one, there is usually a very loud, audible, palpable gasp in the room. And it would be that way even if I said he was straight, frankly, but it's, I think, bigger because they, like, like I was misdirected, they were mis I'm misdirecting my audience into thinking, there's no way this is gonna end happily. There's no way there's an heir. So I say it because it is a research element that that um, had a huge payoff. Now, how did you find out that uh, the, the granddaughter existed? So when I was scrambling to find family, I found a nephew of Bill's. So someone that, you know, was not close with him, but knew him as a as a boy, meaning the nephew was a boy when he knew Bill. And. He said, well, I, I, you know, I can tell you what little I remember, I, you know, but but you really should talk to Bill's granddaughter. And there was another record scratch. I said, well, Bill doesn't have a granddaughter. He had one son who was gay and died long, long, long ago. And he said, no, Fred was gay. And but he did have a daughter and there's a granddaughter. So it was, again, not me deliberately looking for an heir, but just looking for any family. And that came out. All right. So you're at the school. You're telling this story. Then what happens? So day one of the three-day visit, I did my first talk for elementary students and told my full story. And after the story, the librarian, who was my host, the kids had filed out, the librarian looked nervous. And I've seen this before. And she said, oh, did you see how they reacted when you said gay? And I said, to be honest, no. And I've done this a lot. I have seen inappropriate reactions, which I, which I shut down on immediately. But that didn't happen here. So I don't, I don't even know to this day what she saw or heard, but nothing that, nothing that I noticed. And then she said, well, this has been a divisive issue in our community. Can I ask you to not say that again? And I said, oh, I don't, I don't agree with that. And I've been asked before and I've said no before. So I, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. And she said, it's just really sensitive here. I said, well, invite the principal to the second talk. I hadn't met him, the principal yet which she did. And I like when the principals come anyway, because they're the leader of the school and it's nice that they know what's going on in the school and they know who the guest is and what the guest does. And many do come. So the principal uh, came, but after I'd already started the second talk, so I couldn't talk with him before, which is fine. So I'm giving my talk and I could see that he was processing and trying to figure out what he was going to do and talking to other teachers in the back and trying to get my attention in a way, but I'm in front of a room full of hundreds of kids. So I was focusing on the kids, but I could feel it. 
And then at one point he hovered on the side of where I was presenting and he handed me a note which said, please share only, in a, uh, do not share anything inappropriate for this audience. Or maybe it was, please share only the appropriate elements of the story for this audience. In other words, don't say gay. So because I was already in front of an audience and because I didn't want to make a scene in front of the kids, I gave in, which made me sick to my stomach. Um, but I just said, I'll talk about this with him after and no one's going to implode whether I do or don't say it, frankly. But I so chose not to say it for that talk. And then we had a nice 40 minute talk after the presentation, just he and I and the librarian was there for part of it, um, in which he basically pleaded with me not to say it. He wasn't being forceful. He wasn't saying, I'm giving you an ultimatum, which happened later actually, he, but he was trying to be, he was trying to talk to me in a almost a collaborative way. And I said, I, I just don't, I just don't agree with that. It's it's a disservice to kids that are gay and straight, frankly. And, you know, it's just a disservice to this community. And he mentioned, you know, heated school board meetings where parents were up in arms about books that mentioned gay characters and, the th you know, the things that we hear in the news all too often these days. Right. And I said, you know, to be honest, this does not, I'm not sympathetic to that. I, I'm not, it's, you're not going to win me over by saying you don't want to get screamed at. You're the leader of the school. It, your job is to field parent and student and teacher issues. And this is one that I think you need to, you know, stand up for. And he just wasn't having it. So I, I, I gave in again um, with a parting shot, which was that I would just ask that you keep this between us and don't mention this to the second two schools on this trip. Everyone's an adult. Well, they can handle their own school and we'll just proceed as, as planned, which he agreed to. But then that did not happen. So. You went. You went to the next school, and were they? Did they meet you at the door? Well, uh, yes, but actually, even before that, that that night, the night after the first school, the principal and the librarian of the second school called me and said, "We'd like to ask you to follow the same procedure that you did today." And I said, "That was a one-time deal. I, I don't, I don't normally do it. I explained why I did it this time, but." I don't plan to do it again. And he said, basically, it's it's non-negotiable. Either you leave out the word or you you can't you can't present here. And I was already there. I was already, I'd already flown to Georgia and I was a guest in their community. And I try to be a respectful guest, but sometimes being a respectful guest means um, you know, doing the right thing even if your host doesn't like it. So, but I did agree because that was my host school. And again, I was conflicted about that. But when I woke up on day three, uh, I woke up to an email from a reporter saying, we'd like to talk to you about what, what's going on in Georgia. And I said, what, what's going on? In, how do you know about what's going on in Georgia? I mean, I've just been in my little you know, Hampton Inn every night. Who, who knows about this? And I also found out that that principal from school one had emailed an apology to his fifth grade families, the people who heard the word gay in that first talk. And... When I saw that, I said, all bets are off. I was livid. I was livid. Um, not just that he went back on his word, but that he apologized as if I'd hurt people. And I, when I spoke with, or emailed with him later, I said, just to be clear, uh, the people who are hurt here are the ones who got that email and identify as LGBTQ or are allies of that community. No, no kid that heard the word gay is hurt. Nobody. 
So I just went into the third school, fired up, ready to do my thing. And it, yes, they did meet me at the door. Like, I'll let, if you want to interject a question, I, I'll field it or I'll just tell you what happened. That's when it really went to. Go ahead. Really, yes. Okay. So the principal pulled me aside and at the third school and same thing said, we just want to remind you that we, 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 we booked you to excite the kids about research, reading and writing. And I said, that is a hundred percent what I'm here for. And what I guarantee you will have no complaints about that. And she, then when she could tell that I wasn't playing the game, she said, but we also need to remind you to follow the, the to adhere to the standards, the state, you know, the states or either the county or the state standards. I, forget, I don't know what she was referring to. And I said, oh, so you mean don't say gay? She, she couldn't say gay. <laughs> Many of the adults in that community don't say gay. Um, and she acknowledged that. And I said, so if a student asks me if I'm married, am I allowed to say that I have a wife? And she looked caught and said, well, you know what I mean. And I was thinking, I'm not sure you know what you mean. Um, it's the same thing. It's just talking about love without being inappropriate for grade school. But I was starting to realize that they they have a script, they have a belief, and they may talk calmly and civilly with you about this, but they have no intention of trying to think of other people's points of view. And frankly, I don't either, but I really can say with full confidence, I'm on the right side of history here. So I, that sounds arrogant, but I really believe that. And so do thousands of supporters for this, what happened here. So she somehow... Uh, I didn't agree to leave out the word, but somehow she she let the show go on. I, I still don't know how that happened. We were all of a sudden walking into the room with the kids, and I was wondering why is nobody stopping this, but nobody did. So I I gave my talk. Oh, by the way, I also invited the superintendent and the director of communications for the district to attend, and and the director of communications said she would be at the second talk, not the one I was about to do. So I did my talk. I said, gay, no, in, no issue whatsoever. Not even a whisper that I detected. And then I was supposed to do a and a at the end, which I always do, which is built into the time and built into my contract. And at, when they were applauding the end of the presentation, but I hadn't done the questions yet, the principal came and stood by me. And I turned to her and said, we still have time for questions, right? Which I knew we did. I don't even know why I did that. Just to be a respectful guest, I guess. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. We actually, we don't. And I could have said, well, we, we do, which would have been obnoxious. So instead what I did is I turned to the kids and said, y'all want questions? And they all screamed, yeah. And they raised hands and they got excited. So then she had to tell this excited group, sorry, I'm going to be the buzzkill here. No questions. And then when the kids left, I said, I'd like to remind you what you reminded me is that I'm here to excite them about reading, writing, and research. They just wanted to ask me questions about that. And you denied them that. And she said, well, we just have to remind you to follow the standards. How sad. How very, very sad. Did you continue? Did you have more talks that day? I had two more scheduled, but the principal and that director of communications I mentioned talked with me in the gym for 10 minutes or so, just the three of us. And they were being very calm and civil, but, you know, being firm about this this um, request to not say gay. And I said, I agreed to that already in this district and it didn't go well. It, it, was a, it, was, it went against my principles. It was a disservice to the kids and the families here and I'm not going to do it again. And they said, well, we really have to insist. And I said, it, it's just, you, you just saw the first 
talk. You saw that the kids loved it and you saw how enthusiastic they were at the end. You're saying that this one harmless word is going to override all the benefit that you just saw. And they said, essentially, yes. And then the director of communication said, well, you, Mark, you have to understand uh, we just have to be sensitive to age appropriateness. We would, you know, it'd be like, we wouldn't discuss the horrors of the Holocaust with kindergartners. And I said, of course not, but please don't compare how one person loves another to genocide. And I was very firm about that. And then she went and said it to the press after. So she clearly doesn't get how, how absolutely uh, ridiculous that makes her look. And so at the end of this little conversation, they said, you know, we, we can't continue if you'll say the word. And I said, then I guess I have to go. And they said, then I guess you do. So what has happened since? So immediately after that, I met with this group of parents in the community called the Forsyth. This is Forsyth County, Georgia. The Forsyth Coalition for Education. They, had, they were the ones that had publicized the principal's apology. They posted it on Facebook to say, this is egregious. This is offensive. This is insulting. They really took a stand. So I had emailed them the morning of that talk too. And, and, and when this all went south, I emailed back and said, y'all want to meet? And they said, sure. So we, I met four of them at Starbucks and we talked through this and they gave me some history of the community. And I told them what happened. And they said, they're not surprised that I was basically asked to leave. And, but they are fired up too. And they, they, they use this as a, as another springboard to fight back against this intolerance in this community. So they've since spoken at a school board meeting. We're, I'm talking with them about what we could possibly do in the community itself. I would love to go back. I know there would be people that would be very incensed about that, but there would also be people that would be very supportive. And that's how you handle these situations. You, you don't avoid toxic areas because you don't like it. You have to insert yourself and try to break through to people. That's how I, that's what I believe. So I'm hoping that I'll get to go back and do something, do a talk open to the public, at least for the kids that got denied the talk for the second two talks, if their families choose to take them and anybody else who wants to come. Has this followed you around anywhere else in the country? I was just in San Antonio, Texas for two weeks speaking at, I was supposed to speak at 12 schools the night of the, the night, the ninth night. So the last night before my last day of schools, um, same situation happened. I was um, called at the hotel and told that a parent complained, a parent, a single person. It was actually two, I guess, but one started it and then somebody else heard about it. And same ultimatum, leave it out or we have to cancel. And unlike Georgia, my, my contacts in Texas were really broken up about it and I could hear it in their voice. They were not happy about having to do this, but they were answering to a higher uh, you know, a higher office and they, they had to do what they were told to do. And so I said, well, you already know. I said, well, I actually, I didn't know if they knew what had happened in Georgia. We didn't talk about it in all those 10 days. So I said, do you know what just happened to me in Georgia? And they said, we know. And I said, so, you know, I'm not going to leave it out. And she said, well, then we have to cancel. And I said, I know that you're enlightened, unlike some of the people I was dealing with in Georgia, but you're letting one person's intolerance uh, torpedo the ship with all the kids on it. It's it's not right. But they're just beholden to these to these parents that are enraged at this, which is it's so sad, but it makes me want to fight harder against it even though I have plenty of other work to be doing, but you can't just stand by and let intolerance, you know, 
um, you know, roll out the carpet in front of you and do nothing. So what is your, what, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on other books and I'm also speaking. I'm continuing to speak at schools that will have me, which I hope is the majority still. In fact, I'm leaving tomorrow for um, the Middle East of all places. I'm speaking at schools in o Oman and in Jordan, international schools. So they teach in English. Um, so yeah, I'm just still at it. We just didn't, after this all came up in Georgia, we just did a, a fundraiser to raise money for PEN America, which is an organization that um, works. It's on. It's at the intersection of um, of literature and human rights, and they they stand up for our authors and they fight back against censorship and book bans. And so, thirty authors, twenty seven authors, and three other um, allies, all participated in this benefit. And we raised about four thousand dollars to contribute to the to the cause. So that based. I'm sorry. Where where is that based? That organization. Oh, that was the online uh, show. It was thirty authors. Um, each telling a short story of hope one after the other, J just to, it wasn't specifically supposed to be about censorship or banning. It was supposed to be just a positive night. Some of them do have personal stories about being banned and they talked about that, but um, it was just an idea. The idea is to raise money by granting access to people who donate. And a lot of people in the children's publishing industry or in our world, you know, the, the, the schools, the educators, the librarians, the, even the parents, they like to hear from children's authors. So they, they are happy to donate and get this little perk of watching the show. Well, thank you so much for telling your story. And thank you for telling the story to the kids because they want to listen. You know, they want to hear it. And it's just remarkable what some people can do to uh, just squash what's progress in our country. So thank you very much, Mark. And safe travels in the Middle East. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm sorry that I, I talked a lot, but th there's a lot to the story. <laughs> there's a lot to that story. And you yeah. told it. Thank you again. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single minute of the fun. And remember, it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJDPro or by visiting us at amberlive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. Thank you.